0: They are our 11 warriors. Yes, they are the 11 warriors. The most gifted and the toughest damn
1: dudes you're ever going to be
0: around. Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined this week by Chase Brown, who uh, you have heard on Real Pod Wednesdays before as a fill-in for me, but we haven't actually done a podcast together. So, Chase, it's a, it's a pleasure for us to finally be doing an episode of Real Pod Wednesdays together.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to do it. Uh, My first one was with Griffin. I had a lot of fun with that one. I'm excited to make my debut with you
0: here today. Yeah, good to have you Chase and uh, a good time to have you on because certainly a lot for us to talk about this week. Uh, Certainly a uh, very big week uh, of college football news over the past week. Uh, of course, but the huge news coming on Friday that Oregon and Washington would be joining the Big Ten, and we'll talk about that a lot later in the show. But want to start out with the here and now of uh, a current college football season, the current Ohio State football team, because uh, we are now almost one week into preseason camp for the Ohio State football team. Uh, today, Ohio State having its uh, sixth practice of camp, and we have been at the Woody Hayes Athletic Center a lot. Over the past week, uh, we were there for the first practice of camp last Thursday. Uh, We have also, over the past week, had interview sessions with Ryan Day and the Ohio State quarterbacks, Jim Knowles and the Ohio State linebackers, Tony Alford and the Ohio State running backs, and Perry Eliano and the Ohio State safeties. So we have seen and heard a lot in just one week. Chase, what's maybe the biggest thing that stood out to you from this first week of camp?
1: uh actually from the perspective of i guess going to a practice as a media member going and seeing fans at the practice the first practice that we went to was the i guess they rolled out the red carpet for the first time fans could come and witness a practice uh and really the ryan day era you know fans had to pay 30 bucks i think to buy a ticket to go um they aligned the sidelines of one of the fields so to see I guess the the players have that new environment was something that was interesting to to see them uh, perform in front of fans in a a setting that they wouldn't usually do so. I thought the players responded well to that. I thought that was a cool and unique opportunity for the fans to be there. We saw plenty of clips of players signing autographs, of players uh, taking pictures and doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I just saw uh, overall, I think it looked like the players were ready to get out there. There's been all this talk this offseason about different narratives, different storylines of revenge and redemption over losses to Michigan and Georgia and all this talk about the offseason building toward that kind of uh, redemptive arc for this team. But just to see them run out of the tunnel and actually get to put their boots on the ground a little bit was, was fun to see.
0: Yeah, seems like you know the fans who got to attend practices – Had a good time. You know, I know those 500 tickets for each practice were snapped up very quickly. So I'm sure there's listeners out there who may have wanted to go and maybe they weren't able to get tickets or maybe they just didn't want to spend $30 to go see a practice. But it seemed like the fans that were there uh, had a good time. So definitely good that, you know, they were able to have that opportunity. Hopefully that's something that Ohio State will continue to do in the future because it's certainly, uh, you know, good for fans to have that opportunity to get to see uh, the players and more of an up close different kind of setting and really get their first glimpse of the team and you know, like you said we were we were there for one of those two practices the fans were actually there for a second practice that was not open to the media but we were there for the first practice of preseason camp and I think for me probably the most notable takeaway from that first day of camp was seeing who was getting the first team reps at safety because uh, Garrick and I talked about it last week about how that was you know really one of the bigger questions going into camp was who the starting safeties would be. And we talked about how Josh Proctor and Cam Martinez uh, took most of the first team reps alongside Leif and Ransom during spring practice. But uh, last Thursday, it was a different group of safeties out there. And those were uh, Sonny Styles and Jihad Carter. And I think for those two guys to, you know, be out there with a first team was not particularly surprising. I mean, I think, Sonny Styles has been talked about a lot on this podcast this season because there's just a lot of excitement from Ohio State fans about what he can bring to the defense. And so I, I think there's been an overwhelming sentiment from a lot of people of Sonny Styles is too talented not to be playing on the Ohio State defense this year. And it certainly seems like uh, the, the coaches are, are feeling the same way right now about Sonny Styles, if the way they're talking about him that, uh, you know, there's going to be a role for Sonny Styles. I think what maybe we didn't expect was that it appears like Sonny Styles' role could be playing the nickel safety position, which would be a different look for that nickel safety position than last year. Because last year Tanner McAllister was the first team nickel safety, and Tanner McAllister he's more of a cornerback body type playing there in the slot. Sonny Styles he's got more of a linebacker body who could be potentially be playing that same position, and so. I think that was maybe the most notable part of all of it was not just the fact that Sonny and Jihad were taking those first team reps, but the fact that Sonny was at nickel safety and Jihad Carter was at free safety. Whereas I think you might've expected the opposite going in. We saw Jihad Carter take reps at nickel safety before he went down with an injury midway through the spring. But Jim Knowles said after that first practice that. You know, they now believe that Jihad is better suited to play that deep safety role. And so, you know, it appears like, you know, they're looking at Jihad Carter as a potential starter at that free safety spot. And now they're looking at Sonny as a potential starter at the nickel position.
1: Yeah. And that's one thing that I think was was very telling, I guess, today's press conference with Eliano and the safeties. Eliano described Sonny Styles as a unicorn. Uh, as a player that can kind of do anything that Ohio State's defense needs. And I think Sonny Styles has that desire to just fill whatever hole is available on the defense so that he can get on the field. Um, another thing Jihad Carter said about Sonny Styles was probably what stands out about him the most is that he's never seen, Carter has never seen a player as big as Styles move as freely. And as quickly as he does. Uh Styles said today, six foot four, two hundred and twenty-eight pounds, round that up to about two thirty. We'll see if he's at that weight during the season. But you know, Sonny Styles is someone who's big, he's imposing, but he also has the athleticism to be able to stick with some of those guys out of the slot. Um, so like you said, Styles has had a ton of hype around him this offseason, but you know, as we get into preseason camp and after the first five practices or so. It seems that he's lived up to that hype to this point. Um, obviously, this is Ohio State against Ohio State. We'll see what it looks like when it's Ohio State against Indiana and Youngstown State and Western Kentucky and most notably against Notre Dame. But, you know, Sonny Styles for what he has billed or what he was billed to be by Ohio State's coaching staff and by some of his teammates, he's he's certainly lived up to that hype. And, yeah, I maybe this sticks. Maybe it doesn't. It seems like they are pretty open to figuring out which – players fit in the, in the best spots and getting the best 11 players on the field.
0: Yeah. And I think the thing that's interesting now for me is if Sonny styles is going to play that nickel safety spot, is that going to be him playing that on an every down basis? Or is that going to be more of a situational role? Because I still have some questions about whether, A six foot four, 230 pound guy like Sonny Styles is really the guy that you want out there covering slot receivers uh, against a spread offense. Uh, I mean, I I think, you know, one thing that's been made very clear by Jim Knowles, by Perry Eliano, by everybody who's talked about Sonny Styles is this guy can do a lot. You know, this guy has a very unique skill set. And so we shouldn't assume anything. We shouldn't assume that he's not capable of doing anything but he has the ability to do a lot of different things. And so I think they feel very confident that, you know, whatever role they put him in, he's going to be able to make plays. And I think, you know, that's one reason why they really like him as a guy to potentially play that nickel safety role, because it gives them more flexibility. You know, we were talking, you know, in the spring about how, you know, he could potentially be kind of that role player for, you know, when, you know, they have a tight end out there and they need a bigger body that he can kind of play as a third linebacker, you know, even though he's a safety, he could kind of come in and play that as a third linebacker role, you know, as a substitute role. I think, you know, if he ends up being the starting nickel, then you kind of have more versatility without actually having to substitute in terms of, you know, him having that flexibility of one play, he could be lined up out wide as a corner slash safety. And then the next play, he could come in tighter and and play as a linebacker to match up against a bigger body. And so I think the ability for him to do a lot of different things and without having to you know, take him off the field, without having to make a substitute, but being able to utilize him in different ways, I think is something that is very appealing for the defense. But I would still lean toward the idea that if Sonny's going to play nickel safety, but he's not going to be taking every snap at nickel safety. That I think, whether it's a Cam Martinez or potentially even a corner moving inside like a Jair Brown or a Ryan Turner, I I think that, or it could even be a Davis and Eggenosen. I mean, it really. I think my feeling is that there's we're going to see multiple guys play that spot based on situations, and that you know there's going to be situations if you're going against a smaller slot receiver who's playing all the time that you're going to need a, a guy who's more of a cornerback body type to play that position. And it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Like if you're playing in a situation like that, does Sonny move somewhere else? Can, can he play on the field at the same time as somebody else who could be more of that true nickel slot cornerback type of player, I I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting possibilities. Like one thing I've thought about with Sonny is like, you know, if you're in a third and long situation, you know, if let's say you're bringing in a third corner or you're bringing in a Cam Martinez to, to give you some additional coverage ability, do you then move Sonny inside the linebacker and take a steel chambers off the field potentially just to give you another cover guy out there. And so I think there's a lot of different things that you can do with a guy like Sonny Styles, and with the personnel that Ohio State has. You know, I wrote about this for 11 Warriors on Monday that, you know, I think one of the biggest keys for this defense to maximize its potential is going to be for Ohio State to strike the right balance in terms of playing their best 11 guys, which is a thing they always talk about. And I think they very much do view Sonny styles as one of those best 11 guys right now, but also making smart and efficient substitutions to get the best 11 on the field, depending on the situation, you know, the best, the best 11 on a first down against a team that plays a lot of 12 personnel might be different than the best 11 on a third and long against a spread offense, right? And so I think with the amount of depth that Ohio State appears to have on defense this year, particularly in the back seven, I, I think the opportunities are there for them to utilize different packages that, you know, not only get different players involved, but also allow them to match up more effectively with opposing offenses. Now you have to be careful with that because if you start doing that too much, you end up just taking the better players off the field. And we've seen in times in the past where that has backfired on Ohio state. But I do think, you know, when I see a guy like Sonny playing nickel, it leads me to believe that there are going to be multiple different packages and alignments for the safeties and that it's not just going to be, three guys playing nearly all of the snaps like we saw last year.
1: Yeah. And it it seems like that safety position as Jim Knowles has made clear in the past um, will be what drives the defense. And it seems like that is a position that needs to have the most depth um, when considering those kinds of changes, considering how Ohio state will balance not only who starts the game, who, who gets credit for the start, but then, Who's, who's on the field when it matters most? Um, I think those could, as you were mentioning, be two very different things, um, depending on what a, a team runs consistently on offense, what kind of packages they run. One other thing on the safeties real quick, I just wanted to, to get your take on this. Um, Eliano was saying today that he wants to have six guys plus one um, that he can rely on to play significant snaps. Uh, we talked to... Uh, Sonny Styles, Lathan Ransom, Cam Martinez, Jihad Carter. Today, who else would you say are some of the guys that he may rely on this season in that back end? Who do you think are going to get significant snaps in that room?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, like I said, I think if I were to project the starters right now, I would go with the guys we saw on day one those being Jihad Carter at free safety or adjuster, as they call it, Lathan Ransom at bandit slash strong safety and Sonny Styles at nickel safety. Those three guys seem to be the three top guys in the room, the three guys who are going to be hardest to keep off the field. I I think, like I said, I think if, you know, I I could see there being some rotation, some situational stuff with Sonny and Cam at that nickel safety spot. Uh, So I, I do think that Cam Martinez is a guy that's likely to have at least some role in this defense this year. Josh Proctor seems like kind of a wild card to me. You know, he was taking most of the first team reps at free safety during the spring. But now that Jihad Carter has moved to that spot, does Josh Proctor move into being a backup like he was last year? I know Perry Aliano said on Tuesday that, you know, he's going to play a significant role for us. But he also said that last year after he was benched for Leif and Ransom. So we'll see on Josh Proctor, I think you know, he, he's a guy who would be in that six plus one, but I don't, I don't know exactly what his role would look like right now. We unfortunately didn't get the chance to talk to Josh Proctor on Tuesday. So weren't able to get that insight from him. You know, maybe when we're back at practice on Friday, maybe we'll get a little bit more of an idea on that, but I just don't know what his role would look like necessarily, but I do think he's going to be in that two deep. I think he's going to be in that six plus one group. I think the other guy that I think right now seems to be trending toward a spot in that top six would be Malik Hartford with everything we've been hearing about him. Uh, he had an interception on the one day of practice. We were there. He was named silver bullet of the day recently by Jim Knowles and Perry Eliano, Jim Knowles teammates have all had a lot of good things to say about Malik Hartford. He was one of, uh, I believe, only three freshmen to lose his black stripe during Uh, spring practices, which tells you that uh, he uh, has come in and done all the right things. Uh, He's put on a lot of weight uh, in his first offseason after coming in pretty skinny. And so I think they're really impressed with both his physical and mental development. And I think he's somebody who's putting himself in position to potentially play early in his Ohio State career. Do I think that he's going to play a lot this year? Probably not, but it does seem like he's a guy that's positioned himself to potentially be on that two deep, maybe ahead of a guy like a Kai Stokes who had a lot of buzz early on last year, but doesn't seem like that has built up as much going into his second year. And so I'd probably put Malik Hartford somewhere in that six. And then uh, I think the uh, well, one other interesting variable there will be that nickel spot do they utilize guys who are classified on the roster as cornerbacks in that nickel spot in certain situations? You know, Ryan Turner has been taking reps there since the spring. Jair Brown's been mixing in some there as well. And then, you know, you, you look at the corners too. It feels like Ohio state has three guys who are making a real push for starting jobs at that corners corner position, which, you know, I think Denzel Burke is locked in as a starter. When I asked Jim Knowles the other day if he said that Denzel and Jordan Hancock would be his two starting cornerbacks right now, he said yes. So it seems like Jordan Hancock is the number two corner. But Davison Igbinosin's a guy who he just seems to keep flashing and making his case too. And so could he be a guy that could potentially play as a third corner in some of those nickel situations? Uh, I, it's going to be interesting to see how they manage that in terms of whether they utilize the corners a little bit more in some of those nickel situations than we saw last year when they leaned heavily on Tanner McAllister.
1: Yeah, it definitely seems like there is great depth in both of those spots for Ohio state heading into the season, um, which is something that Ohio state, I guess really hasn't had for a long time. Um, Whether it was players that were on scholarship, um, that number being low or guys that were getting dinged up injured, Um, You know, it seemed like we headed into every season being like, this is Cam Brown's year. But then a couple weeks into the season, he would either get hurt or have some sort of poor performance that then led to some of those younger guys getting their snaps. You know, but now Cameron Brown's moved on to the NFL. Um, You've had some guys transfer out, whether it was a legend Cavazos or somebody else. Um, So there has been plenty of opportunity for some of those younger guys to develop. Um, So you bring up that good point of, of whether or not it is worth it to keep that third nickel safety on the field or to bring somebody in, like an Igbenosin, a Jair Brown, to have somebody on the field that can provide that coverage capability. Uh, They certainly have a lot of flexibility on that back end, which, as I said, has been something that Ohio State maybe hasn't had for a couple of seasons now. And I think that they're all excited to see what could come of that, what could come of having guys that are experienced, that are talented, and that are healthy, and um, being able to, to have that flexibility when it matters most.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think there's any straight up yes or no, right or wrong answer in terms of how much Ohio State should rotate at safety or should rotate at corner. But I think the good news is they have the capability to do that. They have the depth to do that. I think you can look at safety in corner and I think you can feel pretty good about you know, but two deep at those positions and feel like, you know, if injuries do happen, there seems to be capable players knocking on the door. You still hope that you stay healthy because, you know, any drop off could be significant, but it does feel like there's a lot of guys at both of those positions who are capable of playing at a high level. And that's very important. Uh, for Ohio state at a position where it certainly needs to be better than it was a year ago. And I think, you know, if you move down a level to linebacker, you know, I, I think you like what you see from the depth there too. And, you know, we know who the starters are going to be at linebacker, Tommy Eikenberg and steel chambers. You know, you can see in the first practice, those guys were continuing to take pretty much all the first team reps, but Jim Knowles has said that You know, he thinks, you know, Cody Simon and CJ Hicks are guys who could have roles too, but he wants to get those backup linebackers on the field a little bit more this year. And certainly much like with Sonny Styles, you know, CJ Hicks being that five-star guy going into his second year is another guy who there's a lot of intrigue around what his role could look like. And I think his role, at least in my eyes, is still a little bit murkier than it is for a Sonny Styles. I think that. Uh, you know, Sonny, you know, it's, it's clear now that Sonny is going to play a lot. We don't know exactly, exactly what his role is going to look like, but he's going to play a lot with CJ. I'm still kind of in a wait and see mode there because we do know that Tommy and steel are of a starting linebackers. Uh, You know, what could his role look like? There's been a lot of talk about the jack position potentially being a role for him but I think they like Mitchell Melton in that role as well and we just don't know how much they're going to use the jack this year uh when Jim Knowles was asked about it Thursday he said it's not the focus but they kind of look at it as a change up curveball something that they can use occasionally uh to give offenses something else to prepare for. And so, uh, you know, I think we will see the Jack. I just don't know how much and how many guys will see at it, but that is a possible role for CJ Hicks. You know, I've said before, like I I've wondered kind of like I mentioned of Sonny, like, you know, in those, you know, passing situations, could there be an upside of maybe bringing in CJ Hicks over one of those starting linebackers? You know, he's a guy that's an elite athlete. He played safety in high school Could he bring something more at that linebacker position in pass coverage than the starters do? I I think that's something worth considering, but I also haven't seen or heard anything that necessarily indicates that Ohio State is looking that route. So that's kind of more just an idea of mine, but I don't know uh, if it will go into practice at all. It could just be as simple as just rotating him in there over the course of a game, getting him some reps, keeping Tommy and Steele fresher by you know, rotating Cody and CJ in there a little bit more. So there's a lot of different things they could do, but I'm still kind of in a wait and see because we saw last year that you know Jim Knowles pretty much leaned on Tommy and Steele to play the entire game. So I kind of have to see that he actually wants to get more linebackers in there and actually do it in a game before I'm really going to believe it.
1: Right, and I think what we saw last year, as you just pointed out, was... Knowles relying heavily on guys that he trusted, um, especially in his first season as a defensive coordinator, arriving at a place like Ohio State, which he's been very open and honest about the idea that he's never coached at a school that has the talent or the prestige similar to Ohio State. The Buckeyes, you know, each year, are expected to have what many other schools are not expected to have, and that is one of the best offenses in the country and one of the best defenses. And so him stepping into this new role as a defensive coordinator in his first year, uh, I think any reasonable person would, would say, I'm going to find the 11 guys that are talented, but more than that, I'm going to find the 11 guys that I trust because my season, talking in from Knowles' perspective, is going to be made or it's going to be broken by the performance of these players that I choose to rely on. Now going into year two, I think Knowles. We'll have a little bit more flexibility with the defense and a little bit more, I guess, leniency with who gets these snaps, how many snaps these players get. Um, And we'll we'll see opportunities and take advantage of opportunities to play some of the the depth, uh, the depth players that he has on the roster. Um, You know, we talk about the big games that Ohio State has with Notre Dame, with Wisconsin, Penn State and Michigan. Like those are obviously games that you're going to want to have your best players on the field for as many snaps as possible. But for as many games as there are on that, of of those kinds of games that are on the schedule this year, there's also the, the Indianas, the Youngstown state, the Western Kentuckys, the Rutgers, those are going to be opportunities where we're going to see a lot more of those depth, those positions with depth um, be utilized. I would imagine because, you know, it's good to have your players, your best players uh, receive rest and to not be relied on or counted on to play every snap you know i'm not i'm not sure that you know tommy Eichenberg and steel chambers guys like that are asking to come off the field but it may not be in ohio state's best interest to have them playing 99 of the snaps against teams that you know the game's going to be firmly in hand after two quarters three quarters so I think that we'll we'll start to see that become more clear in regards to how much CJ Hicks will play, how much Sonny Styles will play, some of those younger, more talented guys that this fan base has been craving to see. We'll see that early on against the, the non-conference opponents and then trickle in throughout the season against Ohio State's, I guess, lesser opponents as we would call them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm looking at it more like, okay, like, who's going to be playing a lot in week four against Notre Dame? Like I right. think those first three games of a season, if they go the way they're supposed to go, a lot of guys are going to apply. But it's when you get to the Notre Dame, so Wisconsin's, the Penn State's, the Michigan's, who who's going to be the guys that you really rely on in those games? Are we really going to see more rotation in those games? Or is that when you really need to just nail down on your, your best 11 or your best 15 or whoever guys. And so I think that's going to be interesting, but you know, to your point, the good news is Ohio state is going to have some time to experiment in those first three games. Well, they should, I, I mean, you shouldn't necessarily say they will, but they should in those first three games, be able to experiment, be able to rotate a little bit more and kind of see what they have. And then when you go into that first really big game against Notre Dame, you'll have three games of tape to be able to evaluate off to know who you can really count on and who's maybe not quite ready to be playing a big role against top competition.
1: Yeah, certainly. And and I think that, you know, while CJ Hicks and Sonny Styles are talented players there is part of me that thinks, OK, these guys are only sophomores like they in many instances. I don't mean to be this like an old head perception perspective, like all oh, these guys never used to play as freshmen. These guys never used to play until they were upperclassmen. But, you know, that's like this is Ohio State. As I brought up earlier, this is a team that recruits the most talented players in the country out of high school in every single class. Um, so to have Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers at the top of their respective totem poles is not necessarily a bad thing for Jim Knowles and his defense. Um, nor is it a bad thing for CJ Hicks and for Sonny Styles and guys like that to be waiting in the wings to be developing. Now, there's there's instances, and this is especially true with Styles, as we've talked about, that Styles needs to be on the field. I mean, he's just he's he's shown himself. It seems like everyone that talks about him has said you know, he has the talent that we just need to find ways to put him on the field as much as possible but i just don't think cj hicks is maybe someone that's quite there he's close but I don't think he's someone that's quite there where Ohio State needs to get him on the field as quickly as possible and as much as possible, especially when you're returning somebody like Tommy Eichenberg, who was an All American, and like Steel Chambers, who, although he didn't have the same statistical production as Eichenberg last season, was just as important in, in stopping the run and showed versatility in the way that he could get after the quarterback from the linebacker position. So, you know, those guys that are ahead of Hicks, they have earned their spots to be at the top of the roster. Um, and I think that CJ Hicks is definitely fighting more of an uphill battle than styles to see the field as consistently as possible.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I mean, I mean, I think Tommy and steel are going to be one of the best linebacker tandems in the country. So I'm in no way arguing that those guys shouldn't be the starting linebackers and playing the majority of snaps. I think that is going to be the case for this room, but I do think, you know, I think the one thing that a lot of fans feel and they've kind of felt for years about Ohio State is that Ohio State tends to lean very heavily on the upperclassmen, sometimes to the detriment of not playing some of those more talented, younger players. And I'm not sure that perception is always in line with reality, but I, I do think, especially when the defense has had some of the struggles it's had in recent years, it, it becomes harder a stomach seeing a guy who is you know, is really talented, is really highly guarded, not being able to get on the field. And so I think, you know, if you're Ohio state, you know, you, you don't have to force CJ onto the field into a role that he's not ready for because you have Tommy and steel, but I do think you have to look at, okay, are there ways in which he can make us better? That doesn't mean that he's going to replace steel chambers as a starting will linebacker, at least not initially, what, what it does mean is, though, is looking, are there things, you know, because when we talk about all this, what it really a lot of it boils back to is when you're looking at a guy who's not in that starting lineup, you've got to look at it and say, OK, what can he do better than the guy he'd be playing over? And I think that's kind of a question. I think, you know, you look at guys like Sonny Styles and CJ Hicks, you look at their athletic profiles and how versatile they are. And I think you can easily find a role for a guy like that where he can do something that's different than maybe what another guy in the rotation is doing. That doesn't necessarily mean they're a better all-around player, but I would think for a guy like C.J. Hicks, there's probably a role for him, a way to get him on the field where he adds something that you don't have without him on the field otherwise.
1: Hmm. Yeah, certainly, and I, and I think that C.J. Hicks, you know, was was touted, was recruited as a player as one of the top prospects in his class. Which certainly coming into Ohio State, that would give him more projected upside than what Tommy Eichenberg had coming into Ohio State. And still Chambers didn't even start at linebacker, right? Still Chambers came in as a running back and made that switch. So I think there's there's absolutely credibility to what you're saying, especially in the regard of, you know, CJ Hicks is, is versatile um, and has athleticism that projects well, even to the next level in the NFL perspective. Um, you know, I don't think any of those guys are really particularly interested in that right now as they're heading into another season where they're trying to beat Michigan and win a big 10 championship and win a national championship. But you can see that, you know, there's reasons why Ohio State would want to put him on the field because he's because he's always been someone that has had that kind of potential to be a multi-down player here at Ohio State. And it may not happen this season, but it's certainly in the works for future seasons. Um, and I think that Ohio State, as you're saying, will want to continue to look for ways to put him on the field in specific scenarios, and specific situations. Um, and as they continue to become more comfortable with that, uh, I do think that that Hicks is somebody that we could see on a more consistent basis, uh, maybe even against some of those stronger opponents that we mentioned of the Notre Dames, Wisconsin's, the Penn States and Michigan's, and and furthermore into maybe postseason play with a Big Ten championship or a playoff or a New Year's Six Bowl, whatever ends up with his team. Uh, there's definitely a great opportunity for him to step into a to a new role this season that isn't necessarily customary for a sophomore, but it is something that uh, CJ Hicks may uh, have the opportunity to live up to the height that is surrounding him at this point.
0: Another guy who could potentially bring a jolt of coverage ability to that linebacker room is Court Williams, who officially made the move to linebacker this past week. Uh, He has been at Ohio state for three years uh, as a safety, but him now going into his fourth preseason camp as a Buckeye making the move to linebacker and you know i say all that not necessarily expecting to see court williams play a lot at linebacker right now because of what we just talked about i mean i you you have tommy eikenberger steel chambers you have cj hicks and cody simon you even have you know gabe powers reed carico fighting for spots at least on a free deep so where does court williams factor in as a linebacker this year i don't know um I do think it's a logical move, though, for him to move to linebacker. You know, Jim Knowles said that, you know, we always thought he was a guy who would be better, closer to the line of scrimmage. And so Jim Knowles believes it is a move that's best for his future. You know, court said it really wasn't something that he thought about until this summer. And so, you know, he was, you know, more inclined to play safety early in his career. But, you know, of course, a guy who's been snake bitten by injuries, tore his ACL as a freshman, had Multiple labr- labrum tears in his shoulder last year, but required uh, two surgeries on his right shoulder, one on his left. So you know he's had a tough time with injuries, and that kind of makes it difficult to know what his future actually playing for Ohio State could look like. But you know, you I, I do think that you know his. Future at linebacker could potentially be brighter than it was at safety. I didn't see him playing a substantial role at safety because of all the depth we talked about there earlier. However, with only two linebackers on the field at once in this 4-2-5 defense, I still don't know that I see him playing a whole lot more at linebacker than I would have at safety.
1: Yeah, which is just so interesting, right? Like this switch, I agree. It, it did make a lot of sense for Court Williams being somebody who, who has thrived playing closer to the line of scrimmage when he has had the opportunity to see the field. He has that kind of body type that fit well as like a bullet in, in Kerry Combs' system, somebody that can move around and be versatile in that way. It, I guess it's just an interesting move given the scheme of the four two five. It seemed like there may be more ample opportunities for him to see the field given that there were three safeties compared to two linebackers and you know, the linebackers, as we just mentioned with the totem pole, um, having Tommy Eichenberg and steel chambers at the top of those two linebacker positions, and then having Hicks and Simon. And yeah, we haven't even talked about Gabe Powers and Reed Carrico as guys that have been, uh, as Ryan Day may say, cutting their teeth on special teams and in in roles like that. So, I I mean, Williams I always think about this. There was a couple of years ago in 2021 where he had one of the cleanest form tackles I think I have ever seen. Um, it came late in the game against Akron that season. Um, you know, just, just lowered the shoulder, got the head right in front of the, the offensive player's legs, wrapped up, drove the legs straight into the ground. It was a great tackle. It seems like he has a, a knack for that kind of ability to, to make those kinds of plays, not only in the short space, but in the open field. I guess it'll just be a matter of, you know, will there be chances for him to develop in that position similar to Hicks? You know, if if it's not going to be Eichenberg or Chambers that are on the field, would they look to Williams to be someone that could fill some of those um, spots where, you know, Eichenberg or Chambers need rest or you know, maybe they're up by three scores, four scores on a, on a lesser opponent. Would they look to Williams to fill that spot? It seems like he's keeping his options open for as much as this change to linebacker has happened, that they, they may pull him back and take him to the safety room again. Um, but then that even contributes to like, is he a, a positionless player? Does he really have a spot that could see him get on the field? Oh, all no, all, like Court Williams, when, I, when we talk about all this, and I, and I know we've we've talked about this off the podcast, Dan, like he is one of the, the top players on Ohio State's roster in terms of likability, in terms of leadership, like these guys love Court Williams. And I think the coaches do, too. They see him as a hard worker, as somebody that gets after it. He came in with a ton of upside, like was one of the first players in his class to, to shed his black stripe. But just the injuries have kept him off the field. Which has just been unfortunate for his development and then it seems like this schematic change with Knowles then shifting from you know what was an opportunity for him to be in the safety position and to really take hold of a a safety driven defense injuries then took him away from that and now we're looking at him in a linebacker spot where there's only two, two spots for him to really find snaps or receive snaps.
0: Now, a guy who looks like he could be in line to receive a lot of snaps right away at Ohio State is Taiwan Malone, which I don't know if that's what we expected when he initially announced his transfer to Ohio State, because you look at his first two years as a college football player at Ole Miss, he really only saw occasional playing time for the Rebels. but. Uh, when we were out there at practice on Thursday, he was in, he was in there, again, I mean most of his snaps were coming alongside the likes of JT2 and Jack Sawyer and Mike Hall and Ty Hamilton. Now TyLeek Williams did go down with an injury early in that practice. Does't seem to be a serious injury. Expect him back, uh, you know, to be back out there uh, over the course of camp. But uh, it did open the door, I think, for Taiwan Malone to go right in there with the first team defensive line. And, you know, everything we've heard about him is it seems like, uh, Ohio state really likes what it's seen from him so far. And so, you know, I I initially kind of looked at it like, okay, he's probably a fourth defensive tackle uh, in the pecking order at best. And, you know, probably they're going to lean more heavily on that trio of Mike Hall, Ty Hamilton and Tyleek Williams. But it seems like Malone is, is put himself on a trajectory where he you know, is really starting to already firm up his place in those top four defensive tackles and where we could potentially see him get a lot of snaps in the rotation this year.
1: Yeah, you're right. It seems like when he transferred to Ohio State, we saw him as a player that needed some development, that needed some time to really become acclimated with Jim Knowles' defense. But it seems like by all indicators, by all accounts, that um, he has developed into somebody that maybe Larry Johnson can rely on you know Larry Johnson has always had that reputation of being a rotational coach somebody that wants to keep legs fresh somebody that wants to you know keep uh, offensive linemen and opposing offensive coordinators or head coaches guessing about you know which four are going to be lined up in the dirt have their hands in the dirt against them so you know it wouldn't surprise me to see him to get some snaps early and the biggest thing I, I always think with, with the linemen, with the players that establish the line of scrimmage is chemistry. Um, so if there is an opportunity for Malone to see the field more, whether it's by injury or whether it's just by you know the fact that he's earned it in practice, him developing that chemistry with uh, JT2 with Jack Sawyer, with Mike Hall, Tyleek Williams, um, Ty Hamilton, you can go, list goes on, but you know the the opportunities for him to gain that chemistry and to continue to be comfortable playing next to those guys, I think, will be um, incredibly value valuable over the next couple of weeks as Ohio State prepares for Indiana.
0: Now, another interesting uh, thing we saw on the first day of camp was Zen Mahalski taking most of the first team reps at right tackle. And, you know, I had said last week on the podcast, but I felt like, you know, that right tackle competition was trending more toward either Tegra Shibola or Josh Simmons being the starting right tackle. And I think, you know, at least in day one that showed that, you know, Zen Mahalski still very much in that competition. Now I don't come away from it saying necessarily I think Jen Mahalski is going to be the starting right tackle I think it was one practice out of 25 before the season I also think they're probably slow playing things initially with Josh Simmons you know he was running mostly as the third team right tackle on day one you think once he gets more acclimated and he has more Ohio state practices on under his belt after transferring from San Diego state, that he's going to get more of those first team reps in there. So I'm going to be really interested, you know, when we're back at practice on Friday to see what those reps look like at right. Tackle is, Josh Simmons getting in there for first team is Tegra Shibola getting more reps in there for the first team. I think that competition remains very much ongoing, but it was interesting to see Zen Mahalski taking those first team reps because even though he's, you know, kind of a veteran in that competition, I still don't know that I necessarily expected him to be the guy leading the order on day one.
1: Yeah, that was definitely surprising. And, you know, Ohio State, I, I guess we haven't mentioned this to this point, but the split field reps, um, you know, they were practicing with some guys on field number one with some guys on field number two. And they, they did a nice job to keep us guessing about what the pecking order was at most positions, considering how they split up some of the snaps with, you know, that specifically, I think that was geared more toward the quarterback competition to make sure that fans and the media weren't speculating about whether Devin Brown or Kyle McCord was going to be the first team quarterback, the starting quarterback, um, but when it came to the offensive line, I feel like they gave us a pretty good look at that stuff. And, and like you said, I feel like Maholski was not someone that I was expecting coming out of the spring to be the front runner through the first couple of practices. Um, but uh, one week in college football practices is like a thousand years, you know, especially for a position that, uh, is looked at so critically by its statistics and, in and, and especially with flags, with penalties, you know, that's, they have refs that are out uh, judging these, these, I guess, what we may call like abbreviated scrimmages of sorts. But when they're running these kinds of reps, ones on ones, twos on twos, or a mixture of the kind, the offensive line is being looked at critically um for its performance in terms of its discipline, in terms of its push off the initial snap. There's so many ways that these, these players are being looked at critically. And over the course of a week, which involves anywhere from five, six, seven practices, a lot can change. So as you said with Maholski, it could be just one day. But you know, it, it will be very telling, I I think, if you know, we get there on Friday and you know, Maholski is still the guy that's leading the first team reps at right tackle. And Maybe how it even shakes up behind them is Shibola taking the second team snaps, is Simmons taking the third team snaps, or is that flipped in some way? And and I think that that will be a position as we continue to go into fall camp. The offensive line, yes, it has has a lot of question marks, but that right tackle position, especially, um, is one that continues to kind of sort itself out over the next few weeks.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, Ohio State has been doing a lot of you know split team work in these early practices with. Uh, two groups of offense and defense going against each other at once that's you know take advantage of its depth its health where it has the depth to really play you know four different lines of players at just about every position and so it's it's doing that in practice to try to give those guys a lot of reps and as such you don't necessarily see as true of a first team, second team, third team, et cetera. But I think with the offensive line, when you see, okay, Josh Fryer at left tackle, Donovan Jackson at left guard, Carson Hinsman at center and Matt Jones at right guard. Like that's the first team offensive line. Now I don't think the left tackle and center competitions are over yet either. I think, you know, Josh Fryer still has to solidify that left tackle spot centers this position. Like I'm going to be looking at that on Friday. Like, do we see Jacob James in there more of the first team? Because he, missed the spring. So they probably weren't going to throw him right back in with the first team on his first practice of the entire year. And so, you know, I, I still think those competitions are open, but I also think we went into the first practice expecting to most likely see Josh Fryer and Carson Hinsman with the first team. So I think until we see something different, at least in my mind, I'm not necessarily going to assume those guys are going to be the starters, but I'm going to view them as the front runners at those positions until we see something different. I think right tackle. Well, we'll, we'll come back next week and we'll kind of see, you know, based on what we learn over the next week, if, you know, if somebody looks like they've emerged as a front runner there, but I, I don't think we can say that yet at right tackle. And, You know, I know there's probably a lot of people that were well into the podcast and we haven't talked a a second about quarterbacks yet, probably are wondering why not. But I think the same is true at quarterback, where I don't think we've seen enough there to draw any conclusions. And I know that like people are probably sick of hearing that like answer because it's kind of been the answer all year long. But like, for one, the one practice we attended, they didn't really do a lot of like downfield passing stuff, like, they did like a few. Like sesh periods where they did some passing, but there's a lot of short passing stuff. Not a ton of stuff where you could really like evaluate the quarterbacks side by side. And I just think we're still at a at a juncture, at least based on what we have seen, where neither quarterback has clearly outperformed the other. Where there just hasn't been that separation that Ryan Day really wants to see before he's going to name a starter. And so we may learn more this week. As we mentioned, we'll be back at practice on Friday. Uh, Ohio State is holding its first scrimmage on Saturday. So we're not expecting to be there for that, but I'm sure you know we'll hear more about it in the coming week. And that might start to give us more hints in terms of who might be in the lead in that quarterback competition. But I still think where we stand right now that quarterback competition between Kyle McCord and Devin Brown remains unresolved.
1: Absolutely. And in tomorrow, Wednesday, um, the real pod Wednesdays, um, we will be talking with coach day. And I'm assuming that when somebody asks him a question about the quarterback competition, that the answers will remain the same as they were last week, that, you know, they're all playing well, they're all progressing well, but, uh, when it comes to Kyle McCord and Devin Brown, that nobody has particularly emerged. That's just going to be my guess, um, my prediction. You know, it, it just seems like at this juncture, as you've mentioned, that we haven't necessarily heard enough buzz around either person that that day will first thing he does come out for the press conference on Wednesday and is like, you know, Kyle McCord's our starter. Our starter or Devin Brown's our starter. It doesn't seem like that's where we're at right now. Um, just because also, too, you know, these guys are practicing against each other, but they just put the pads on for the first time at the end of last week. Um, There's still a ton that they're putting in and installing in terms of the playbook, Um, you know, for as, for as experienced as, as McCord and Brown are, you know, Ohio state is a, a program. Ryan day and Brian Hartline are coaches that are constantly evolving. There's things that are required that a quarterback know and a quarterback learn that go beyond the traditional I'm going to snap the football and the first read I see, I'm going to throw it to them. Like there's complexities to this thing that take time. And, you know, Ryan Day may have, I won't say, I won't go as far as to say that he did a disservice to say that he wants a a starter to emerge early. But when you say early, I think that leads people to be like, okay, how early is early? Um, Are we talking about first practice? I'm naming a starter. Are we talking about the first week? I'm naming a starter. That's just not. I I don't think that's typically how um, Ryan Day has handled these situations. It's it's been a process, and I think that there's a lot that he is um, measuring and just making sure that he picks the right guy that's going to lead this team. Because we've said it a few times on this podcast now, there's a few weeks that Ohio State has to figure out some of the the question marks, or to I guess resolve some of the question marks with some sort of finality with Indiana and Youngstown State and Western Kentucky. But there is a big game that a quarterback needs to be ready for, an offensive line needs to be ready for, and a defensive secondary needs to be ready for, and that is when Ohio State travels to South Bend. Uh, Notre Dame's going to be no joke, and Ohio State needs to have all of those pieces figured out or solved or at least have some sort of certainty about which choices um, to make and which players will be in those spots so that they can get a win on the road in Week 4.
0: Yeah. And keeping in mind uh, that day's press conference on Wednesday has probably already happened by the time people are listening to this on Wednesday. But, you know, typically Ryan, typically when Ryan days named a quarterback, it's been, you know, after at least two weeks of camp. So, you know, I would guess end of next week would probably be the earliest that we're going to get a firm answer on that quarterback competition. But I do think that after the scrimmage on Saturday, Ohio state could potentially have a better idea of where that competition is going to go. doesn't necessarily mean they're going to name a starting quarterback yet, but I I think Ohio state after, after the end of this week might have a better idea of where they're going to go. If not, then the competition will continue and we'll see how long it continues. If they even feel comfortable naming a firm starting quarterback before the start of a season. But I, I think, you know, the the scrimmage on Saturday is going to be the biggest opportunity so far in camp for one of those quarterbacks to stake their claim to the starting job and emerge as the starter.
1: Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that this has just been an opportunity for Ryan day to see what changes also need to occur in the offense, transitioning away from CJ Stroud to a guy like Kyle McCord or to a guy like Devin Brown. You know, there was the spring practices, but There's only really so much that you can do with those opportunities to really shape your offense around the next quarterback that will lead the offense. And so I think that's a part of it too that may fly under the radar is not only how will those guys replace CJ Stroud, how will they fill his shoes, but how does an offense change around each of those guys that are playing quarterback? Um, They both can do the same things well, but there are differences between the two guys that you need to account for. Um, so as you're saying, I think that it will take maybe just a little bit more time for day and heartline and the rest of the offensive staff to feel confident about a decision. Um, and then they'll use those next couple of weeks of preseason camp. And then some of the, the opportunities that they have against their first couple of opponents to, to really find a solid offensive scheme that they can build around their quarterbacks that utilize the weapons that they have all around those quarterbacks, um, to make them feel comfortable, to make. Uh, Those weapons feel satisfied with the amount of touches that they'll receive. Yeah, this decision goes well beyond who completes the most passes in practice and who's throwing the most touchdowns and who's, you know, as Day always likes to tout, taking care of the football. That stuff matters, of course, Um, and that it matters what we see and it matters what um, those coaches see on a daily basis. But, you know, I, I think there's so much that goes into this decision that is probably still needing to be unpacked in these next couple of practices.
0: All right, Chase, I think we've gone way too long without talking about conference expansion. So let's let's move on to Big Ten expansion, uh, because huge news on Friday with Oregon and Washington joining the Big Ten. Uh, They will join the conference alongside USC and UCLA in 2024 which will bring the Big 10 to 18 teams. Uh, the Pac 12, on the other hand, uh, is near death at this point with Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah all going to the Big 12 on Friday, joining Colorado, who had uh, announced it would go to the Big 12 one week earlier. Uh, that leaving the Pac 12 with just Cal, Stanford, Washington State, and Oregon State. And there are now uh, conversations about the possibility that the ACC could potentially add Cal and Stanford. So the PAC 12 is effectively dead. The big 10 is, uh, going to be the big 18. If we're going to be more accurate with numbers, uh, chase, what do you feel about these additions? Are they good or bad for college football? And are they good or bad for Ohio state?
1: My answers to those questions would be very different in regard to college football. I'm mixed. You know, I feel like college football as a whole will be better, but when it comes to just how I, I, it has affected or maybe impacted some of the rivalries and the traditions that previously existed under the conference structures, I'm saddened. You know, I think it was a necessity that the big 10 continue to strengthen the makeup of its member schools, given what the SEC brought to the table with the additions of Texas and Oklahoma, and then also fending off, I guess the the idea that with the SEC being the top dog, fending off the Big Ten, would uh, Pac twelve, the Big Twelve, the ACC from being the secondary. Uh, the conference, you know, like you, you, you may not catch up to the quality that the SEC has produced, but you certainly can't be three, four, or five. You need to be positioned right there with the SEC in terms of strength, which the the Big Ten has answered um, with the additions of USC and UCLA and Oregon and Washington, and the Big Twelve has responded um, well too. While I don't think that they're quite the level of the Big Ten in the SEC, the Big Twelve has done a good job of adding quality programs. So I'm a little bit torn. You know, I think that college football it, it may not have the same identity that it had in, in previous iterations of what this sport has looked like from a conference structure, but at the same time, I think that the quality of games that the high level teams will play are going to increase, and, and I think specifically for Ohio State, you know, you you aren't very thrilled as an Ohio State fan when Ohio State matches up with Northwestern with Rutgers and Maryland, uh, but you will be thrilled when Ohio State matches up with Oregon and Washington and USC and UCLA, right? Like it's, and in terms of a quality of opponent, but but that, and then also the quality of games, these additions have done numbers, have done wonders even for the, the kinds of games that Buckeye fans get excited about, you know, that people feel an excitement for, not only from, the Saturday where a game ends to the next Saturday, but feel excitement for the entire off season. I think those additions have, have really helped Ohio state um, in terms of that kind of strength of schedule and the terms of just excitement around its team. And there's, there's mixed feelings, but overall I feel like it's, it's been good for the big 10 to add those teams.
0: Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, the the big 10 has uh, separated itself from the pack as a, power two conference one could say alongside the sec and you know without a doubt i mean you know that you know the big 10 we we saw the media rights deal that the big 10 signed last year i mean the big 10 is going to make a a lot of money off of this new deal over the next seven years and whether oregon and washington are going to necessarily make the big 10 more money right away i think that is a question. That's why Oregon and Washington, you know, as we kind of predicted on the show last week are coming in as, you know, only half revenue shares because the other big 10 schools weren't going to agree to bringing them in if it was going to dilute their revenue that they're going to get from this new media rights deal. But I think, you know, everybody kind of looks at it long term and says to be able to add two more marquee brands to really have, you know, private four biggest brands from the west coast now in the big 10 i think the big 10 has really kind of staked its claim to a territory that has always been dominated by the pac 12 and now the big 10 has kind of claimed the west coast as its territory in in the college football landscape and so you know i think you know it it makes sense for the big 10 for those reasons you know like you said i mean it's it's there's a lot about it but also like doesn't add up like does it add up that big 10 volleyball teams are now going to be making cross-country trips in the middle of the season uh to go play west coast schools when that's only going to cost schools money i mean i i don't think that it's good for those reasons i think obviously these decisions are driven basically entirely by football i mean they're not even they're they're really not especially in the big 10 like maybe in the big 12 basketball is a little bit more of a element here these decisions are not being driven by basketball they're being driven by football period and i think you know there's benefits that it may have for football that i don't think it's going to have for any of the other sports i think the 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 drawbacks are going to outweigh the benefits for pretty much every other sport here and so i i think that's the downside of it but i think you know realistically You know, the Big Ten and the SEC and to a lesser extent, the Big 12 are very much in this arms race of trying to build the most powerful football conferences. And, you know, because of that, the Big Ten probably isn't done with 18 teams. I mean, there's a lot of chatter right now about if the ACC is going to be the next conference to go the way of the Pac-12 and, you know, Florida State, their leaders uh, came out last week and were very you know were very public about their desire to get out of the ACC and there's been rumblings that other schools you know like Miami, Clemson, North Carolina, Virginia, what have you, they could potentially be looking for a way out of the ACC eventually too because the gap between the SEC and Big Ten revenue and ACC revenue has become substantial and so uh, it, it seems like a distinct possibility that. You know, between both the Big Ten and the SEC, that some of those teams in the ACC could eventually be on the move to what have now become the clear Big Two conferences. Now, you know that's not imminent, I don't think, because the those ACC schools are locked into a grant of rights that runs through the next thirteen years, although you hear what Florida state leaders have to say. I don't think they're going to sit on their hands for 13 years and wait for that deal to expire. I think they are looking to make a move much sooner than that. Now, if it's going to happen this year, it would have to happen within the next week because uh, next Tuesday is the deadline for any schools to exit the ACC in time for the 2024 season. So uh, we'll see. We'll see when, when we're here with a show next week, if we're talking about a, more schools joining the Big Ten. but you know as of the time we're recording this, that does not seem imminent. However, I, I do think that there's very much reason to believe that you know this is not going to be the last round of expansion for the Big Ten. And I think most likely the next round of expansion is going to come from schools that are currently in the ACC.
1: Yeah, the ACC, you can even see them, I guess sort of anticipating, that in a way that they're the next meal that the conferences um, that have established themselves at the top being the sec and the big 10 are looking at the programs of most value at the acc and and potentially have their eyes on adding those programs as member schools Um, and and why I say that is because the ACC has reportedly been looking into the additions of Cal and Stanford, which as the Atlantic Coast Conference makes zero sense, um, adding to Pacific Coast schools. Um, and as you mentioned, Dan, with the, um, I guess we would say the non-revenue programs, the Olympic sports, I have no idea how that makes sense to, to, to look at at the, the makeup of a potential ACC future and see all of these schools on the East Coast and then have Stanford and Cal all the way on the West Coast. That seems like a logistical nightmare, but that almost feels, I would imagine, that the ACC feels those additions would be out of necessity to try and fend off the Big 10 and the SEC from adding the ACC's more valuable programs those being you know Florida State, Miami, Clemson, North Carolina, Virginia you know you could name more schools if you even wanted to like what 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 is so fascinating to me about all of this is just that the Big 10 and the SEC yes they could sit on their hands and wait this out and see what happens. And, you know, they don't need any more teams, but they can have them. So will they use that muscle? Will they flex it in a way to, to add those programs that may not be necessary, but could add to the overall value in terms of revenue and TV dollars um, that could come from those additions.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I and mean, I do think that like, if you're looking at additions for the big 10, that could, add real value to the conference, you're certainly going to look at those big brands in the ACC, you know, Florida State, Miami, Clemson, you know, UNC and Virginia are two schools that have been connected to the Big Ten a lot. You even back to the Jim Delaney years because, you know, there's schools that kind of fit the traditional Big Ten profile of, you know, high academics and all that. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of schools in the big ACC, probably those five in particular who would have the most value to the big 10. And certainly the sec uh, could be interested in adding some of those schools as well. But, you know, I think if you're a big 10, you look at the possibility of expanding into the Southeast and claiming some territory there, a territory that has traditionally been dominated by the sec and ACC. You know, I think as the big 10 continues this expansion into, you know, from what used to be a Midwest based conference into now a national conference. I think it's a logical next step for the big 10, you know, like it or not, because, you know, I think there's, you know, for a lot of people, uh, you know, this is not something they necessarily like to see But the big 10 is kind of stepping away from its Midwestern roots and becoming this, you know, coast to coast conference. But, you know, this is just kind of a reality of where college football is going. And you, you look ahead to next year and, College football is going to look very different next year than it looks right now. I mean, it, in many ways, this kind of feels like almost the last quote unquote normal season of college football. And 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 certainly we're gonna get used to the new normal next year, uh, with you know the playoff expanding to twelve teams, you know, with all these uh teams changing conferences like Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC and uh all these Pac 12 schools going to the Big Ten and Big Twelve. I mean, we're gonna get used to it. But there are major changes coming to college football and and college sports in general, and I think you know as our Garrett Hodge outlined in a column he wrote for Eleven Warriors over the weekend, uh, there's some good to this, some bad to this, and some ugly to this.
1: Certainly, and and it seems
0: like you
1: know when you were explaining
0: that, Dan, I'm just
1: thinking about like the alternative. For Ohio State fans that maybe aren't pleased about the future of college football, I'm thinking about the alternative of, you know, it's it's Ohio State fans, Ohio State is a program that drives revenue, and that's always been true. So that has boosted the value of the Big Ten for a very long time. But if, let's say, the Big Ten didn't have as good a media deal as it does, the Big Ten could very easily be in a spot that the ACC is in right now, where Ohio State and Michigan and maybe Penn State get picked off and they go to a different conference. Or could, in another world, would you know those schools be then taken to a, to a different conference and the Big Ten as we know it was left behind or the Big Ten becomes the Pac-12 in a way where the Big 12 gets picks off the, the Big Ten schools or the SEC picks off the Big Ten schools or the ACC, whatever. You know, The Big Ten was in a great place uh, before the additions of USC and UCLA, but it strengthened its hold as one of the top conferences in college football in particular because of those additions and continues to strengthen its hold over as one of the conferences of strength with the additions of Oregon and Washington. So I, I see those moves. For as as hard as it may be to face the reality that the change is coming in college football, the Big Ten and Ohio State in particular could be in a very different place had events gone differently five years ago, ten years ago, and it just it's hard to wrap your head around a little bit because that's not actually what occurred but to look at ohio state as a school that was able to maximize its brand to maximize its revenue generation based off of its football and other athletic success that put the big 10 in a position to be a conference of record which is kind of what gear got into a little bit about like you know there there's a lot of good that comes from this change and when we look at the bad and the ugly like a lot of that stuff i think down the road well the 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 travel and the fans and all that stuff won't be looked upon as bad as it maybe is right now and in particular like the death of tradition you'll build a new tradition right like college football as we know it is changing but then you know 50 years down the road that college football will die and then there will be another new version of college football and it'll keep going on um Sorry for the rant, but I'm just thinking about, you know, Ohio State could be in a completely different place right now. And, and and it just to be on the forefront, I think, is exactly where Ohio State needed to be. And that's where they are.
0: Well, and you just I mean, I think back to three years ago and this was this was different than all this. But I mean, I remember three years ago when we were in the middle of the pandemic and the Big Ten wasn't going to play football. And there were people talking about Ohio State and Michigan going to the SEC. And granted, that was never going to happen. But. I just think that illustrates the fact that we're in a very different place now to where, you know, nobody's going to be suggesting anybody leaving the Big Ten. You know, at least not a power school, even the Big Ten, because the Big Ten has clearly strengthened itself and staked its claim as we are an elite conference in college sports, specifically college football. And I think, you know, to your point, you you either – in this wave of realignment, it's become clear you either make moves or you get left behind. And yep. that's what happened to the Pac 12. The Pac 12 didn't take action to strengthen itself. It waited and had this belief that if they just kind of bided their time, that everything was going to work out. And then schools like USC and UCLA got impatient and made the jump, and everybody else followed them out the door. And so I think the Big 10 recognized we have to make these moves if we want you know when the sec added texas and oklahoma the big 10 couldn't just sit on its hands and be comfortable with tradition it had to go out and make its own moves to show that we are serious about playing ball with the big boys and so uh i you know i i think in that perspective uh it it makes sense for the big 10 like i said i mean i you know i'm I'm not, you know, from a football perspective, I am not opposed to these moves because I think it's, it's just going to make the big 10 stronger from a football perspective. I think it's going to lead to more big games within the conference. I think, uh, you know, it's just, it's just going to make for more competition because realistically in the big 10 in recent years, you know, you've had, you, know, you really have had three power teams in Ohio state, Michigan, and Penn state. You know, you have teams that are kind of in that second tier, like Wisconsin and, in, in Michigan state, but then you also kind of have like half the conference that is not really viewed as any kind of serious competition for big 10 titles. You know, I think now, I mean, you look at these four teams, they're adding, I think at least three of them in USC, Oregon and Washington, you can put in there as teams that have a real chance. Like I don't think they're going to come in and immediately become the best teams in the conference, but I think they are teams that at least have a real chance to contend with the likes of Ohio state, Michigan and Penn state for big 10 titles. And so I think it does make the conference stronger and more competitive, particularly from a football standpoint, you know, I I mean, I think, you know, from a standpoint of just like what makes sense, like I did kind of like the idea of like traditions being based, like conferences being based in geography and, you know, schools playing closer to each other. But I think the reality is like, that's about to be a bygone era, at least in terms of major college sports, that these conferences are no longer prioritizing geography, they're prioritizing money, I mean, period. And that's just the reality. And it's, I think it's for people who really love just the tradition of college sports, and, you know, the quote, unquote, like purity of college sports, that it's sad to see that money is is truly driving all of this but that's reality it's long been reality i know when i was on the 11 dubcast a couple weeks ago we were talking about the influence of money on college sports and it's like i told him it's like you know this isn't new with nil or any of that this has been money money has always driven these conversations and it's only become more so now that you have tv deals of conferences that are worth a billion dollars per year and so that's not going to change i mean that's why the playoff is expanding that's why this realignment is happening i i do personally think that these changes can also have some positive impact on the sport in terms of there's going to be more games that matter in november and december there's going to be more teams that feel like they have a chance to win the championship. I've said it before, like, I'm a proponent of the 12-team college football playoff for those reasons, but is it going to be different? Are some of the things that, you know, we know and love about college football maybe not going to be as prominent as they once were? Uh, Unfortunately, the answer to that is yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the biggest grievance I think a lot of people have with the 12-team playoff is that, For example, maybe Ohio State and Alabama, Georgia, people think like, oh, the regular season doesn't matter anymore because even if those teams have one or two losses, they'll still make the playoff. The reality that Ohio State could have two or three losses at the end of a season in the future Big Ten, it becomes more likely, more feasible, more reasonable, maybe not more likely, but just the possibility that that could happen when you have a conference that has teams like Michigan and Penn State, USC, UCLA, Washington, and Oregon, Wisconsin too, if you want to throw them in that group preparing, Ohio State's schedules year in and year out are going to get tougher and tougher. And depending on how they view maybe the non-conference schedule and what kind of opponents they want to put in there, they could make the schedule maybe just a little bit easier or they can make it a whole lot more difficult depending on who they choose to schedule. And so I think that, you know, the future of college football maybe isn't one that's, that's easier for a school like Ohio State to navigate because of the 12-team playoff. Uh, there's a possibility, depending on how their schedule shakes out, that they're going to need to win some tough football games just to make the 12-team playoff. It's not a reality that I'm going to accept until I see it happen. But the fact that there's going to be the chance that you could stack all of those teams on Ohio State's schedule, it it makes it a lot more difficult for a team to make the playoff. And it makes for a lot more entertaining regular season football. And I think that that was one thing that people were maybe upset with, with the addition of more teams to the playoff, is that the regular season wouldn't matter. But now that you have conferences that are stacked with teams with quality football programs, the games that you're going to see in months that You know, maybe don't all that impact the the playoffs in the current makeup of how the conferences are constructed. They could very well um, have tremendous impact on the way that the conferences or the, the playoff, excuse me, is seeded and how teams qualify for it. So I think it makes for an exciting product.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think it even goes back to the conversation we, of course, had a couple of weeks ago when Ryan Day suggested the idea of moving the Ohio state Michigan game. And I think, you know, one thing that's maybe not, I think one thing that's probably being a little too assumed when we talk about that Ohio state, Michigan game is like this idea that Ohio state and Michigan are always going to be the top two teams in the conference. Like you mentioned th- there's allowed to be more contenders in the big 10 than there have ever been before. And so this idea that Ohio state and Michigan are going to be a game ahead of a field every year going into that last game of a year like it's possible like do i think it will probably happen at some point yes do i think it's going to happen every year no because i think the competition's only going to get tougher if you factor in the likelihood that the big 10 is probably going to add even more big name schools in the future like the competition's only going to get tougher within the big 10 and so i do think that's one thing that's been a little bit overlooked in some of those conversations is this idea that like Yeah. I mean, the big 10, like, you know, if, you know, I mean, when when we talk about this year, like USC, Washington, like those teams in particular, those are teams that we're going to talk about being in the college football playoff race this year. Like if this, if the big 10, what it's going to be next year was what it was this year. I mean, you look at the coaches poll that just came out. I believe you'd have five teams in the top 11 from the big 10, those being Ohio state, Michigan, Penn state, USC and Washington. And so there's going to be a lot of really good football teams in the big 10, which is going to make that conference championship race. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. And I guess this would be a good question for us to to bounce out of here on. Um, it's been long talked about, and I think that Gene Smith has been probably one of the biggest proponents of this, but do you think Dan, that it's, it's time for college football to separate itself from the rest of NCA sports, some of those non-revenue sports, even men's basketball, uh, women's basketball. Is Is it time that the football gets a governing body that just oversees football?
0: I think it's definitely something that should be talked about right now because I think, you know, we talk about, you know, all this conference expansion and everything that's happening and it is, it's so heavily driven by football. And I think, you know, the next big conversation that's already starting and is only going to grow as a result of this realignment is this idea of revenue sharing with athletes. And I think that's something that's coming sooner than later. And specifically for football, it's coming sooner than later because you look at how much money is being generated by football TV ratings and media rights contracts that are driven by football. I think at some point, whether the NCAA wants to go down that road or not, the courts are going to force the NCAA's hand into sharing revenue with players. And so, I think probably the best way for that to happen is for the FBS football to to have its own governing body. You know, whether that be under a college football playoff umbrella or whatnot, that can then allow them to. Have those conversations with players and figure out how to distribute revenue to players, whether that be through the college ball playoff revenues, conference revenues, what have you. And so I, I do think that, you know, the time probably is now for football, FBS football to look at splitting off from the rest of the NCAA. Now, I also think to that end, a lot of the damage is done because now that the you know, now that the big 10 is already realigned, like, you know, you you can't really go back. You're not going to go back and put the big 10 back where it was. And so in (laughs) terms of how this is going to impact other sports in terms of travel and all that, like, I think the damage has already been done. I don't think you can just put the toothpaste back in the tube there, but I do think with just the way football is driving so many of these decisions that impact all the various college sports, I, I, I do think increasingly there is a need for football to become its own entity and do its own thing rather than being lumped in with all of the other NCA sports.
1: Yeah. And there's, it just takes a lot of paperwork, right? Like it just takes a lot of work to make that happen, but it's necessary work that needs to be done. Um, I think about a lot of the Olympic sports that Ohio state, um, Ohio state's programs compete in. Many of the sports don't actually belong to the Big Ten. Uh, The Big Ten sponsors a good good amount of them, but think about like women's hockey that belongs to like the Western Conference, or um, I think about maybe even you know I'm drawing blanks on the programs now, but you understand what I'm saying. Basically, that Ohio State has plenty of programs that don't compete under a Big Ten umbrella. They compete under uh, some different association of teams that, while they don't belong to the Big Ten, maybe has some traditionally Big Ten programs as a part of them, just to continue with women's hockey, like they play with Minnesota, they play with Wisconsin, but a lot of Big Ten schools don't have other women's hockey programs. Um, So in order for Ohio State to have teams to consistently play against, they play as part of that Western Conference. Um, I I think it, it would take a lot of paperwork, yes, but it's possible that the football Programs, the FBS football programs would be able to branch off from the NCAA and create a league that has its own governing body that abides by its own set of rules. And and I think that in many years past, especially during the COVID year, uh, conferences as individual conferences have been able to shove aside the NCAA for their own purposes. As we saw with the SEC and the ACC, they said, we're going to play as many games as possible. The Big Ten, they maybe you know, took a knee for a little bit, but then they said, okay, we're going to come back and we're going to play this amount of games. And they did that all without the NCAA's discretion. The NCAA pretty much sat idly by. They sat without saying a word, without saying a peep, and they did whatever they want. They Those conferences, they did whatever they wanted. And, and it seems like what could eventually happen when what probably should happen is that a governing body is created just to take care of football as those other, pro, those other sports, maybe they don't belong to a Big Ten that, as it currently exists. Maybe they belong to a separate conference in different sports and allows them to play with more regionally-based teams that is more cost-effective when we talk about national travel budget and stuff like that. Again, it, it's a lot of conversations, it's a lot of handshakes, but it's a lot of stuff that needs to happen. Because as we've talked about, TV is driving the revenue of these deals. Um, TV is driving the revenue because of college football, because of the people that want to watch those games, because of the people that tune in to watch on Saturdays and on and Tuesdays and on all these things. Like college football controls the narrative all the time. And I think that eventually it'll get to a point where there is just... No other option but then to have a governing body that overlooks it all.
0: Well, Chase, thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Did you enjoy it?
1: I did. It was great. Um, it was very fun time, and you know we we have another great week of camp coming up, and I'm sure that the next time I make a debut on the pod, it'll be. Uh, plenty of national news like there was today to go along with it.
0: Yeah, no no shortage of, of things happening right now, both in college football and in Ohio State football, as you mentioned. Uh, lots more uh, media availability coming over the next week, and uh, I'll be back with a co-host to be named later to talk about <laughs> it all. So uh, thank you for listening in, and we'll talk to you again next week.